Thank you, worship team. Today we'll be reading from uh, Psalm 73, beginning in verse 1, going all the way to the end, uh, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their deaths, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges with fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They are set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know, and is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children." When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came to the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, receive me to glory. Who have I have in heaven? Who do I have in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish, and and you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may take and tell all your works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We praise you as God of all the universe, all-knowing, all-present, almighty. We praise you as the eternal God of justice, mercy, and grace. Help us, God, to be a thankful people, thankful for our families, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, aunts, and uncles, relatives that love and shepherd us, and those that do not. Help us to be thankful for our health, as good or as bad as it may be. Thankful for each day that we have, knowing that you decide if we have even a single one more. Thankful for our jobs, good or bad, our wealth, whether a lot or a little. Help us not to be envious of other people, their fame, their fortune, or their lives that they live. Knowing that we only see the bits of their lives that they want us to see, not the sin, sorrow, and corruption they do not. But you, God, see it all, and let us rest in that. Help us, God, to return to you, seek you, love you, serve you, 
and praise you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Rob. Um, before I jump into uh, our sermon here this morning, there's a couple things I want to highlight for us. First of all, impressed as always, Corey and team are back from their LTC trip as of uh, sometime this morning. <laughs> so good job, Russ. So good. To have, we can't wait to hear report, obviously, at, uh, at a later time, but it's really good to have you back, and I'm sure Loretta and the kids are loving that too. So, <laughs> uh, But they are coming back, but there are also some people that are leaving, uh, and that's not because you guys, you come back or anything. It's just, uh, it just happened to coincidentally kind of fall on the same Sunday. Uh, first of all, uh, Alan and Sandy Steigerwald are, this is their last Sunday here because they are moving to Vancouver. Are they, Sandy, Alan, are you, where, where's Sandy at? There's Sandy. Sandy, can you stand up a second? Come on, go ahead and stand up, Sandy. Yeah. Sandy has been here, and her husband, Alan, have been uh, part of IBC for a very long time. She's taught as Sisters of Scripture. She has been very involved for many, many, many years, and we are going to miss you very much. And I know that uh, there's been a, you know, a lot of things that have changed in your life the last couple of years and stuff, and um, I think it's okay to say I know your husband, Alan, he is going through some difficult, uh, you know, he's got dementia, and I don't need to go explain all that. The fact is, that makes it very difficult. So they're going to go into an assisted living facility, and that's going to be much better for them. He's going to get the attention that he needs on a regular basis. But Sandy, we're going to miss you guys very much, but thank you so much for being such incredible members of this church body. So I really appreciate that a lot. There's another person that's leaving temporarily, uh, and that is my brother from another mother, Anthony Sakor. Anthony, come on up here, brother. Anthony is getting ready to take off to Liberia again next Saturday, and so we wanted to give him a moment to share with us. You're not preaching, though, so just come on, come on. No, 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 you are. <laughs> I just know you better. I have to qualify what you're up here to do, so... So, but, but brother, we are excited that you uh, are, I know you guys know, most of you know the process, but Anthony was one of the pastors here, and now he's basically a kind of missionary status. He's back and forth between Liberia, his home country, and, uh, and there's some, been incredible work and kind of next phases of that whole training center too. So tell us briefly kind of what is, what you're doing, what you're planning on doing, and what God has laid on your heart, Okay. I know, I know, and you know that we serve a great, big, wonderful God. Amen. And, but it's sometimes good to encourage one another that our God is not a religious God. He is a living, living God. And so, you know, there's nothing too hard for him. He told Sarah and Abraham for years that you're going to have a son. And it's been years and years and years. And that son hasn't come. And Sarah, one time the angels, the Lord told her, you're going to have a son. And she laughed. And we do the same thing. Life is such a way that sometimes we say, 
Is this really going to happen? Hmm. But remember, the Lord said, is there anything too difficult for me? Mm-hmm. And so whatever you're going through, remember that nothing is difficult for God. Amen. As we go, as I go, we are working with over 300 churches in Liberia. And sometimes it becomes very difficult. And you want, and the flesh want to take over. But well, I want your prayer. That as the Lord said, abide in me and I abide in you. And without me, there's nothing you can do. And I want to be in the Lord. I want to depend on his leading. I want to depend upon his spirit. I want to depend on everything about him. Because he never fail. I will fail. Thank God I don't have. Sometimes we follow our own wisdom. Thank God I don't have much wisdom. And so I'm dependent on him. And so continue to pray for me as we go out there and walk with the churches. When Zemzan come to train, we go to those people and they all come. Mm-hmm. When any team comes, like uh, equip Liberia, when they come, they train the people. And so we, they are working with us, and we thank God for your prayers, for your support, and for the place that you have provided for them to come and be trained. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. Amen. Hey, brother, before you take off, church family, let's just stand to our feet right now, and we're going to pray for our dear brother. He's actually, uh, make sure, don't, don't be pickpocketing me, so... Let's just pray for our dear brother. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks. We, I love the ministry that you have called our brother to and, and his wife, uh, Doris, who I know she goes back and forth as well, and I know it, uh, it's not easy, but Father, we know that you are the one who sustains both of them. We know that you are the one who opens up doors of opportunity. You are the one that is really orchestrating their entire life and ministry, and really the question for him and for all of us is, Are we going to say yes to what you lead us into? Are we going to be faithful to what you call us to? And so I just thank you that for such a time as this and up to this point in his life, that has been Anthony's desire. That has been his heart is to follow you wherever you lead him, no matter how confusing it might be in the moment. And we are just thankful that many lives have been touched, changed, and some even to eternity because of his faithfulness. And so, Father, continue to glorify yourself. Continue to uh, give him the mind of Christ. Continue to give him wisdom as he goes about heading back and making lots of decisions as he's encouraging and strengthening and becoming a cheerleader for so many people. I just pray that, Father, again, for his health, all the logistics, everything, Father, we just give into your hands and we trust that you're going to use him mightily for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. All right. Keep standing. Just kidding. We're going to do our... No, I'm just kidding. You can sit down. (laughs) Wow, you really took me seriously. That's amazing. (laughs) Hey, uh... 
If you're new with us this morning, first of all, I want to say just welcome. We're glad that you're here. We have people all over the place. There's family camp going on at Salt Creek. Uh, we were there last night, like a number of you. There's about over 100 of us having a little potluck at Salt Creek uh, yesterday evening. And there's a bunch of people camping out there. There's, a, I know, summertime is like the summer of uh, vacations and everything. So everybody's all over the place. But those of you who are here this morning... It is a rich privilege, and if you're new with us, we are so glad that you are here. Whatever we can do to come alongside you, if you have questions, we would love to provide answers. You might be wondering, uh, if you're like, I got kids with me, do, don't we release kids? And yes, we do, all the other 11 months out of the year. But the month of July, we actually take a, a break for our, our, our IBC kids volunteers. And so we believe in the value of rest. We don't want to burn out our volunteers. And so we take the whole month of July off just so they can just kind of be a part of it, which means that, yes, the rows are a little more full because the kids are filling it out and they're like, oh, this part is so difficult. I know, the sermon part. So kids... How many kids we got in here? <laughs> Aaron. <laughs> how many people feel like kids in here? So, How many people act like kids in here? Yeah. Okay, kids, I want to hear from you. 100? Okay, that's his favorite number. So everything's 100 if it's a lot. So kids, I want to hear from you. When I say on the count of three, I want you to say, I'm here, okay? Because you are part of this church. You're not just the future of the church. You are part of this church, okay? So ready? On the count of three, I'm here, okay? Ready? One, two, three. I'm here. All right. Very good. And so... Us older people that act like kids but don't look like kids any longer, uh, they're here with us, and so we have this incredible opportunity to, to, to really to all be and gather together. I know kids, there's uh, coloring sheets that went around. If you don't have a coloring sheet for your kids and you would like one or a little sermon notes, you can just raise your hand. The ushers would love to put something in there, so just keep it raised until something comes into your hands there. Oh, there we go. So keep your hand raised. Even if it gets tired, support it up there. And uh, someone will give you a coloring sheet, uh, not just to pass the time by, but uh, for you to stay as attentive as possible. And here's my challenge to you young kids, okay? Here's my challenge. If you're able, think of one thing that you're going to talk to mommy or daddy or both about, okay? One thing, all right? Try to listen to one thing to go like, hey, I want to I'm curious about that. Even if it's a question, one thing that you're going to take away from the sermon this morning, okay? Okay? Okay. <laughs> Here we go. All right. <clears throat> well, you know, as much as, uh, you know, we... We've talked about this before, but we live in what is classically or now traditionally known as the information age, right? We live in an age in which it's almost like you can literally Google anything and at least get some kind of response or some sort of answer. It doesn't mean it's always right, but something will come on your screen as a result of you Googling whatever question you have. But what is interesting about being in this kind of information age that we have is this. The more we learn, the more questions we have, right? 
Even in the advancement of technology, the more advanced we become, quote unquote, when I say advanced, uh, the more questions we have in life. There are, it always raises 10 more questions. When I was a biology student, uh, I got a biology degree in my undergrad, and the interesting, one of the takeaways I got from having gotten that degree was this, everything we learned about the human body raised like 10 more questions that we weren't quite certain. There was always theories, and I don't look at doctors in the room, and there's all kinds of things we have learned, and it's incredible what we have been able to discover. And at the same time, there is so much we do not know. And we learn just to accept what we do not know. As much as, as complex as a human body, we're just kind of scratching the surface of what, is the, what does it mean to comprehend the universe? The, the fact is, there are questions that sometimes confound us, right? They kind of confuse us. They stump us. They, they, they're questions that have, maybe have yet to uh, determine or have definitive answers to. I believe two questions that continue to confound people even today, and yes, even in the evangelical church, is this. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? Now, I'm not actually going to go into the whole issue of the fact that no one is actually good, You can look at Romans chapter 3 for that because, again, a common or pervasive belief is that, well, there's mostly good people with a sprinkling of bad people. And the Bible actually teaches a very different message. The Bible says that nobody is good. You remember that scene when someone comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, good rabbi. And he says, hold on, time out. Before you even say or ask a question, I want to correct your understanding. He says, only my Father in heaven is good. Because after all, we, look, we, we talk about good, and we talked about this last week, right? Good is just kind of this vague term that we just throw out there. It could have a, a variety of meanings. But when God refers to good, he is referring to perfection. In other words, there's nothing that can stand or be compared to it. So good, according to God, is perfect and therefore holy, which disqualifies all of us on our own works and on our own terms. You see, what can oftentimes trip us up and confuse us, however, is why some people are the tragedies of, of, or victims of terrible tragedies and why others seem to experience very little hardship at all in life. Have you ever wondered about that? You look at someone's life and sometimes we kind of get a little jealous, a little envious of someone's life because it seems like they have everything. If only I had what they had, Right? Life would be better, I would be more joyful, or whatever it may be. Some communities are wiped out by natural disasters, while others only hear about these horrible events from afar. Some people die unfortunate accidents, while some people never even experience a fender bender. Some die at a young age, while others are breaking longevity records. What I believe troubles our sense of justice even further, however, is that when we we see people who seek to live a righteous life, who are actually living a life seeking to do what is right, seeking to honor God, seeking to be obedient to what they know to be true, and as a result, only experience hardship and tragedy. And yet at the same time... 
We, we contrast that with other people who could care less about anybody but themselves. And I'm not asking us to come, you know, think of somebody right now. But there are people in life that could care less about anybody else but themselves. And at the same time, they never seem to get what they deserve, right? They, never, they continue to live a long life without any seeming repercussions. It's almost asked, it helps, it kind of makes us ask the question, what is up with that? What gives, God? How is this even possible or fair? Solomon the sage says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible, by the way, because it is like a, a sobering reality on reality. He says this, in my vain life, I have seen everything. I even got it up there. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. It begs the question, how can God be a just God and allow these injustices to occur? How, how is this fair? And yet this is actually where the real issue lies in the first place. It's about fairness. Probably one of the, the number one source of conflict for my kids is, I know I'm talking about kids right now and they're in service here, is this issue of fairness. Anybody relate to me? Any parents relate to me? They got one bigger than me. They got more than me. How come she got to do it and I don't get to do it? It's all about comparison, right? Right? <laughs> yeah. In other words, it's like, unless I get something bigger than you, life is not fair and I cannot be happy. The fact of life, however, is life is not fair. And probably one of the greatest lessons you could instill to your children is this, this acknowledgement and acceptance that, that life just is not fair. Life is not fair. Life doesn't always seem to go to work out the way you think it should. And your actions and your decisions do not always result in predictable outcomes. Things do not always go well for good, the good person or the righteous person. And sometimes it seems as though the red carpet is rolled out for people that we might conclude are terrible people and they never seem to reap what they sow. It begs the question for us, if life doesn't seem fair and God is the creator of life and is in control of all things, then does that mean God is not fair? Or we might better off, be better off asking the question in this way, is God just? Does God just or judge rightly? Though both followers of Jesus and outright pagans alike can struggle with these questions of fairness and justice, we do, as followers of Jesus, actually have an answer to these questions. While there are many questions in life that continue to confound us, there are questions, these, there are answers to this question, why do bad things happen to good people and why do good things happen to bad people? In other words, there, there, is, there is an answer given through the lens of Scripture because it's important that we understand or adopt and, uh, and live by a worldview, a biblical worldview. 
And a biblical worldview is seeing life through a biblical lens. And so what we need to do is we need to kind of see life like this. In Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2, we get a a short description that God created everything and everything that he created was perfect. It was good because good, according to God, is perfect and it was fair and it was just and, and humanity, Adam and Eve, they walked and they talked with God and they loved him and he loved them. They had perfect communion with each other and God said, be fruitful and, and multiply and, there were, and everything that happened or occurred was just as it should have been. That was Genesis 1 and 2. But unfortunately, from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20, we might call it a parenthesis. In Genesis chapter 3, without going into detail, there was a rebellion. Adam and Eve chose to sin against God. And because of that sin, everything that God created was negatively affected. It was negative. It was corrupted in some way. And judgment as a result came because of sin and humanity no longer got to experience the relationship and the union that they once held dear with God. The point is everything in the Old Testament, everything in the New Testament, everything on up to our current day today, we are living in what's called a parenthesis. But then you look at Revelation 21 and following and everything is perfect once again. We see that sin is destroyed once and for all. Satan is destroyed once and for all. And all those who have responded to Jesus Christ will be eternally saved. Relationship with God will be fully restored and fully realized and lived once again. But here's what we need to remember. Right now, you and I, we live in a parenthesis. We're in a kind of a parenthesis phase of human history. Right now, you and I inhabit a world that is fallen, a world that is under the curse of sin and under the dominion of Satan. And because of this, guess what? Life is not fair. Injustice, unfortunately, is normal. And sin continues to wreak havoc on everything. The question for us this morning is, how are we to think soberly and clearly while living inside this parentheses period of human history? How do you and I live and worship a just God in the midst of so much injustice? Let's begin by defining what we mean when we talk about the justice of God. And again, if you haven't caught on already, if you're new with us, we are going through a long series not a bad long series, just a long series called The Attributes of God. And this morning's topic is the justice of God. When we think about the justice of God, first of all, we must understand that, uh, that justice is not something that God possesses. Instead, it's the very essence and nature of his character. In other words, God's just, God, God doesn't just have the ability to enact justice. He doesn't just have the position and authority to be just and to be the judge. No, God is the literal definition of justice. He is justice by his very nature. God's moral law and all his commands are merely a reflection of the justice and the character of God. I love how uh, J.I. Packer actually 
explains this to us. He says, God's work as judge is part of its witness to his character. It shows us also that the heart of justice, which expresses God's nature, is retribution, the rendering to men what they have deserved. For this is the essence of the judge's task, to reward good with good and evil with evil is natural to God. So, when the New Testament speaks of final judgment, it always represents it in terms of retribution. God will judge all men, it says, according to their works. The point is that the heart of justice is this. Everyone gets what they really deserve. Eventually, everyone gets what they really deserve. And if we want to look at multiple biblical examples, one, for example, is in Genesis chapter 18, when we see how Abraham pleads to God to save Sodom and Gomorrah, right? You know, you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? We see, if you don't, let me just give, me, give you a quick overview of it. Sodom and Gomorrah, very prominent places, a place of uh, a trade, but it was also a very wicked place. It would probably, be, we might describe it as the, the kind of the, the, the Las Vegas of sexual debauchery. It was heinous. Sin was rampant. And there was nothing really curbing. It was a lawless area. And I won't make any comparisons to today's environment. But the fact is, God looks and he says, these places are so wicked that I must destroy them. Now, we must understand here, actually, just kind of a little hiatus here. We need to understand that the, what God, when he, when he looked at Sodom and when he looked at Gomorrah, he did not look and see all the various sins. That's not what he was actually, in a sense, saying you are guilty for. You see, the ultimate sin that led to all kinds of other sin was the sin of pride. What God was judging Sodom and Gomorrah for was a sin of pride. And you might ask the question, why do I make such a big deal about that? Because it makes it relatable to you and me. You see, so often we can point the finger and go, oh, look at, those, look at that terrible place and look at, the, look at that, those people there or, or look at that organization there and we go, I can't believe how wicked they are. I can't believe how... Uh, uh, um, uh, godless they are. But what God was judging was their pride. Anybody ever struggle with pride? The fact is, pride leads to all kinds of other sin, all kinds of, to, all kinds of moral failure. Pride leads us to walk away because pride is a self-sufficient attitude saying, I don't need God. I will do things on my terms. But God was going to enact justice on, that, on the evil that was pervasive in Sodom and Gomorrah. Only there was one problem. Abraham's nephew, Lot, was living there with his family. And so Abraham negotiates with God to not destroy those cities. He even negotiates saying, hey, if you find 50 righteous people, will you not destroy it? And God says, okay, that sounds good. Well, he doesn't find 50 righteous people. He says, well, what about 45? What about 40? And he goes all the way down to the number in Lot's family. But here's what we need to recognize. Here's, what we're, here's the point of what I'm getting at here is that Abraham negotiates with God in, in Genesis 18 by appealing to God's justice. Listen to what he says in Genesis 18, verse 25. Surely you wouldn't do such a thing. 
destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? You see, Abraham was appealing to the justice of God. He believed God to be a fair God, that God is just in all his actions, that he is right. God is just and fair in all his ways, especially his response to both right and wrong. I think the psalmist even describes God's justice in this way. Listen to Psalm 97. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. I love the kind of the, the mental image that that kind of gives for us, right? I mean, if you picture kind of Jesus on the throne and you think about what's the foundation of that throne and it's righteousness and justice. God cannot be anything other. He isn't sometimes righteous and sometimes just. He is eternally in infin- infinitude status, just and righteous. The heart of God, at the heart of God's justice is everyone gets what they really deserve. People may not get what they deserve right away in that very moment, but God wants you to know that we can trust him and to trust that he is fair and that he is just and that no one will ever be treated unfairly. question for us then is, at this point, how does God reveal his justice to us today? It's one thing to offer a definition and maybe a biblical example, but how does God reveal his justice to us? Five ways that he does this. First of all, God reveals his justice through what we call natural order. God's justice is intrinsic to his creation and therefore observed in his creation. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have, been, have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. The point here is that there is a sense of right and wrong all over the world and throughout all of human history. As a result, there's a sense of kind of a justice, a sense of accountability built into God's creation. Even if people don't even believe in God or at least the God of the Bible, there's still some form or expectation of accountability in life. It's why this whole term called karma exists, right? What goes around comes around. There's a cause and there's an effect. And, some, and there's some unseen force that ensures fairness and justice for everyone's actions. That's what the heart longs for. We long for justice. We long for fairness. Secondly, however, God reveals his justice through the human heart. Even people without a biblical revelation or any knowledge of Jesus Christ still have a sense, right, of right and wrong. Paul acknowledges this in Romans 2, a chapter later. He says, they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. 
And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge everyone's secret life. The fact is, much like what creation points to, even the human heart understands God has given us this, God, this, this thing called the conscience to help us understand what is right and what is wrong, what is fair and what is unfair. It doesn't mean it's always perfect. It doesn't mean that it's infallible, but, it, but it's given by God to guide us in this life, to protect us in this life. doesn't mean that everybody's right. But oftentimes what people conclude is that when bad things happen to you, obviously you must have done something wrong, right? This is what the people in, uh, in Acts 28 thought about Paul. Paul was bitten by a serpent, right, when they were shipwrecked on this island. And they're like, well, surely you must have done something wrong because no way the God, God or the gods would have allowed this to happen. That's how they thought about life. I'm not saying that they were right. What I'm saying is that they still had a sense of fairness and justice. You must have done something wrong, and now you're reaping what you're sowing. The irony about this, however, is that even though people have a sense of right and wrong, no one actually lives up to their own standard. In other words, even people may know the right way to live, but at the same time fail to live the right way consistently. In other words, everyone is a hypocrite. I know Christians in the church, you know, especially evangelicalism, right? Oh, the church is full of hypocrites. And it's true. We are hypocrites. You know why? Because we have a standard that we don't always live up to consistently, and nobody does. That's why the standard must continue to change in society because no one can actually live up to what they know to be true and right. I love what C.S. Lewis says when he says this. These then are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they, they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. They know the law of nature. They break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. Again, Lewis's point, I think, is spot on when he says this. In order to think rightly about ourselves, we must admit our inability to keep even our own moral standard. But there's a third way that God reveals his justice, and that is through his role as judge. You see, the very idea or essence of justice means that there must be a judge. Look at what Hebrews 12 says. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. Or the, or the gospel writer John says this in John 5, 22, the father judges no one. Instead, he has given the son absolute authority to judge. And we see that, that the culmination of God's redemptive, uh, God's redemptive work in history, everyone will one day stand before the almighty judge and give an account for their life on earth. Carla just shared that with us from Philippians chapter 2 earlier in our service. One day every knee will bow and one day every tongue will confess, both in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Maybe not in this life, but one day that will be the conclusion everyone makes. I think the whole irony, again, there's a lot of ironies in this justice, that God is just. Even though God reveals his justice through the cross, 
or excuse me, I got ahead of myself. That brings us to our fourth uh, way that God reveals his justice, and that is through the cross. The cross is God's justice in action. The cross reflects God's gracious but necessary response to sin. The cross is the only way that God re- that deals fairly and justly with our sin, while at the same time reconciling our relationship with God. And here's the irony I was referring to a second ago. The cross means that you actually don't get what you deserve. Remember what I said earlier in the service. Justice means that, every, that because God is judge and justice is his very nature, that everyone gets what they actually deserve. But then we look to the cross and we actually realize, I don't get what I deserve. And that's a hearty opportunity to say amen. I am so grateful, and I'm sure that you are so grateful that you don't actually get what you deserve. That is how amazing the cross of Jesus is. The fact is, so often in our, in our lives, when we live our lives, we want mercy and we want grace when we are the offender, but we want justice when someone offends us. But in our humility, we must acknowledge that we are the offenders and God is the one that is offended. And what did he do? He did not judge but instead he extends mercy and he extends grace. He says, I am eager to forgive you, even though you were the one in the wrong. This is the gospel, my brothers and sisters. This is the gospel lived out, that God sent his son to be the savior of the world. That God sent his son on a mission to forgive us of our sin to forgive us from all rebellion. Pastor Corey talked about this a number of weeks back, about forgiveness. Forgiveness, by definition, means that we absorb the offense of another and no longer hold it against them. Forgiveness means that no one deserves retribution or the one who deserves retribution is exonerated because the one offended absorbs the offense. This is what the gospel is, that God absorbs our offense and he takes personal responsibility for our rebellion. He says, as far as the east is from the west, I will remember your sin no more. You think that's fair? Absolutely not. So on one hand, we want fairness in our life. And the other hand, I'm so grateful that we don't get what we deserve that God kind of looks over fairness and says, I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to take your rebellion and your sin and I'm going to reconcile you, I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to show myself to you in such a powerful, transforming way that you will realize how good I am. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, for Christ also died for our sins once and for all. That's an important phrase. Once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Fifth and finally, God reveals his justice through the promise of eternal retribution. Remember what I talked about, we're in a parenthesis stage now. 
but Revelation 21 is coming, right? Where sin is destroyed once and for all. The enemy is destroyed once and for all. And there's implications for both believers as well as unbelievers. For believers, we see the implications somewhat spelled out in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I will read a, a, a passage here. Paul says this, Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that, has already, that we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. I recently watched Gladiator. (laughs) We made a little getaway a few weekends ago. I don't know if you like Gladiator or not. Maybe I shouldn't have admitted that, but... uh, (laughs) I like it. You know, it's one of the movies I can watch over again every once in a while and go, yeah, it's still good. Um, There's a line at the very beginning, right? The opening scene, the the battle scene with the Germanic tribes and peoples. And uh, there's this line that just kind of sticks out that is way more biblical than I think the, the screenwriters realized. And that is this, what you do in this life echoes into eternity. What you do in this life echoes into eternity. That could not be more biblically true. What Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 3 is this. What you do in this life does matter. Not just for the here and now, not just for this particular moment, but forever. And for unbelievers, as Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9, it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment. It's really a warning to unbelievers that because God will make all things right, there will be an eternal retribution that God doesn't overlook. Either our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus or we are outside of that mercy and grace that God offers freely to us. And if we are outside of that grace, then there's only one alternative, and that is a place of eternal conscious punishment called hell. J.D. Greer says it this way, hell is what hell is because God is who God is. So what does that mean for you and me? Knowing that God will make all things new and and make all, all wrongs right again, how must you and I respond? What should our response be to God's justice? Let me say three things very quickly. First of all, we must choose to embrace Jesus today as our Lord and Savior. Brothers and sisters, if you have not said yes to the free gift of eternal life, can I just say to you, can I implore you, can I appeal to you, do not delay. Don't for one moment think, I got plenty of time. The only time you have is the very breath you just took right now. We don't know what life holds. We, all I know is, after having done a gazillion memorials, that life is fragile. And you are not promised to live 90 ripe years. You, all we know is that you're alive today. 
May you not reject the invitation today and may you receive this gift that Jesus says, I love you and I'm eager to forgive you. And I'm eager to call you sons and daughters of my family. So choose to embrace Jesus as your Savior today rather than meet him as your righteous judge later. The second thing is this, refuse to take revenge when treated unjustly, knowing that God alone is judge. If you want to look at a passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21, Paul gives this kind of, after having established the gospel and how bad off we are all, really are and how good God really is and the, and the gift that he provides for us. And he's like, so then it's almost like, how then should we live with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? And that's Romans chapter 12 and following And he says, never repay evil with evil, but return evil with good. Don't harbor bitterness. Don't harbor resentment in your heart. Know this, that God will make all things new and right, no matter what. Rest in the perfect justice of God. Third and finally, Ponder deeply your time, your talent, and your treasure in view of the judgment seat of Christ and the injustices of our world. I I like what Dallas Willard actually, his mom used to say to him often. He said, he related this. He says, keep eternity ever before your children. Parents, keep eternity ever before your children. Help them view and and comprehend and perceive and interpret life through the lens of eternity. As Jim Elliott once said, live as as though you are on the threshold of eternity because we must all stand before Christ to be judged one day. Each will receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil we have done in this earthly body. God is a just God. He's a good God, as we talked about last week, right? But he's also a just God. He can't either just be good or just just. He is actually both perfectly and completely and eternally. May we know the real God, and may we, our lives, conform and surrender to this God as talked about, as revealed in Scripture.